Psalm 51, this is God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we turn to you now as we have heard your word spoken to us. And as your word is spoken to us, Lord, we hear your voice. Lord, we've thus far spent time speaking to you in prayer and in worship and song. But now, Lord, we want to hear from you. And Lord, even though these fine folks will hear the voice of a man, help them to know that as your word is preached, they hear God's voice speaking to them. And so, Lord, would you please speak to us today? Bring us to a place of conviction and surrender O Lord, as we consider our great need before you today. And I pray that you would cause us to behold Jesus as the only Savior for sinners in need. Do this, we pray, for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being seated. If you're taking notes, the title of this sermon is A Sinner's Guide to Repentance. A Sinner's Guide to Repentance. Psalm 51 is a chapter in the Bible that is connected to a real-life event in the life of King David of Israel. King David lived in around the 1000 BC. He was the king of Israel. And at a time when kings were off at war, 
King David remained at home, lazy, taking a nap. After rising up from his nap, he took a stroll out on the roof of his palace. And while he was taking his stroll, he took a notice of a beautiful young woman bathing named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, one of David's fighting men who was off where David should have been, off at war in battle. So in a moment of unrestrained lust, David ordered that she be brought to him, where she then forced himself on her, and she conceived. But out of fear of being discovered, David ordered Uriah, who was a man of integrity, to be sent to the front lines where he was certain to be killed in battle, and he was. Sometime later, God sent the prophet Nathan to David to confront him because the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. And if you study 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you can read this story in its fullness. You see there that David responds to the Lord with radical repentance over his sin. For the next two Sundays, we are going to be considering the subject of sin and repentance from two angles. When I was in high school, I took a number of art classes, and in one particular class, we had to observe uh, this bowl of fruit that was in the middle of the room and draw this bowl of fruit from our perspective from the place where we were sitting. And so all the students did the project, and in the end, there were many drawings of the same bowl of fruit, but from different angles. And of course, we had a complete picture because of it. Psalm 51 is a picture of David's perspective from one angle. It's his perspective before he receives forgiveness of sins from the Lord. Psalm 32, which we'll look at next Sunday, is a picture of David's perspective after he is assured of God's forgiveness. Both of them are a portrait of the same subject, written by the same author, David, but from different angles. And together they make up a complete picture of the nature of repentance and forgiveness. But friends, just look at this for a second. Here we see a man after God's own heart. David is called. A man who loved God with all of his being. A man who God chose to be the king of all of his people. And yet here is a man who took a deep, deep fall. A man who wrote many dozens of psalms, psalms that still encourage many of us today, but a man yet who nevertheless fell who in fact fell so low he broke every one of the second five of the Ten Commandments in very short order. This is very big sin with very big consequences. And yet, God has preserved it for us. He's preserved it for the church, for people who still today commit sins that may be in our minds small or maybe in our minds grievous, each producing their own consequences, but sins 
all of which must be atoned for, and all for which God has provided blood sacrifice to do so. Friends, this is a a serious subject. It's one that most of us don't like to talk about. It's one that usually is the last subject brought out when you have a time with your friend. But this is a subject that God's word is not afraid to talk about. It's one he wants us to think about. It's one he wants us to meditate on. This psalm poses the question, friends, what will you do with your sin? What will you do with your sin? Let's see what David did with his sin and what we can learn about the nature of sin and repentance. Let's divide this up for easy study. We'll put it into three sections. The first section in verses 1 to 6 is the psalmist's confession. In verses 7 to 12, in the second section, is the psalmist's petition. And thirdly, in verses 13 to 19, is the psalmist's mission. His confession, his petition, and his mission. Let's look at the first together, the psalmist's confession, verses 1 to 6. Again, we're told in the heading of the psalm, you see it there in your Bible, that Psalm 51 was written by David as a sort of... uh, theological reflection after the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted David with God's word and disciplined him. Verses 1 to 2 are a sort of summary overview of everything that follows in the psalm. We'll notice that this psalm mentions nothing of forgiveness. We're going to have to wait to Psalm 32 to get there. But the psalmist is now deeply aware of the severity of of what he's done. So this psalm is a, a prayer of confession of his need for forgiveness as much as it is a beautiful picture of repentance. Now we've talked about repentance some here in the recent months with our Uh, series on Jonah, but we need to spend a moment, I think, again, trying to understand the nature of biblical repentance, because if you have the nature of biblical repentance wrong, you're going to go wrong in all of life. We need to understand it. As it's used in Scripture, the, the word repentance is actually a really simple word. Its meaning is actually quite simple. Repentance in the Bible simply means a change of heart that leads to a change of action a change of heart that leads to a change in action. It's heart change that leads to life change. And David's experience shows us that this change is a gift that's given from God. It's not the direct result of man's own will or initiative to to feel something. No, God takes the initiative in repentance. We can do things that make us get to repentance. People can say things to us that bring conviction on us. But the the, the fact of repentance is that it is a gift from the Spirit of God working in an individual's heart. So God sent Nathan to David to confront him for his sin. For the better part of a year, David was able to suppress his conscience To go about life is relatively normal, and we know this because the timeline says it. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan came to David just as Bathsheba was about ready to give birth. 
So between the moment of David's grievous fall to the moment of the birth of this baby is what? Nine months? So it's at least up to nine months that David has been carrying this sin. But God sent Nathan, the prophet. Yes, to severely discipline David, which God did. But he also sent him to help David see how grievous his sin was. And a God, as verse 1 says, who is rich in mercy, rich in steadfast love, abundant in mercy, a God like that exposes sin in his people's hearts only if he is determined to forgive them. We see this in 2 Samuel 7.10. I referred to this in our series in Jonah. It says, For godly grief, that is, grief that's from God, produces a repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of action, that leads to salvation, a, a clean heart without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So you see, repentance is a divine gift that does what? And enables someone to see their sin through whose eyes? God's eyes. To see their sin in the way that God sees their sin. And this psalm tells us how God sees our sin. Friends, God sees our sin as treason. A willful rejection of his laws. A willful theft of glory that belongs only to him. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David says. David says that he sinned against God because deep down he's a sinner. He says in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Friends, God delights in truth inside of David. But as a human being, he's born into a sinful state, and without God's in in intervention, it's going to lead to greater sin. God shows David that what he did was evil. In the Bible, evil is anything that harms life. It was evil. And in doing so, he proves to David that he is indeed blameless in his judgment. He's right to call sin what it is. That's why we see David using these different words in verses 1 and 2 to describe sin. He, he says transgression. Transgression is the willful, rebellious crossing of a boundary. It's a military term. Iniquity, it's a a perverted departure from the standard. Sin, we know, of course, is missing the mark, missing the bullseye, missing the target. This is what God calls sin. God uses these terms to describe our sin. You see, friends, we know David's repentance is genuine because he's not downplaying his evil. This is no little, you know, oops, my bad, I made a mistake, Lord. Come on. Now, to the psalmist, confession means calling sin as it is. Willful rejection of God's law. Attempting to strip glory that belongs only to him. Now, perhaps someone here poses this question, and I just say that because I did too. 
David didn't just sin against God, as verse 4 says. David sinned against a whole bunch of people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his family. He sinned against his whole kingdom. He sinned against even his own body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says when you sin against your body sexually, when you commit adultery, you're sinning against your body. Well, this is true, of course, but we have to understand what David's saying here. David's saying repentance doesn't start with men. It doesn't start with me going to the people that are on the outside. Repentance starts with God. David used people to steal glory for himself that only belonged to God. David used people to steal glory that belonged to God. That's what sin is. Friends, so often our impulse is to to minimize the vileness of our sin, to, to make it out to be not so bad. We say things like, you know, that word treason, that's a strong word, bro. Evil, evil, that's a strong word. Not to God. Not to God. And certainly not to the Savior who was wounded and bruised and pierced and crushed for it. You know, the reality is Psalm 51 is preserved because there's never a time when we don't need a lesson in true repentance. See if this is true for you. When we aren't thinking biblically about our sin, we we tend to do one one of two things. Either we think too little of it, too little of it, or we're crushed by it. One of those two things happens. If we think too little of it, what do we, what do, we do? We say, we say a quick prayer maybe, or maybe no prayer at all, but we very easily move on from it. If we're crushed by it, we're weighed down by it, we, we carry it around, we're depressed, we're, we're miserable, and too often our response to sin is determined by the severity of the consequences that we face. And the severity of the consequences tell us if it was a big sin or not. And so if we have a lustful thought in our head, that's a very small consequence sin, at least right now. And so, oh, we just, we just move on. Lord, please forgive me. I shouldn't have thought that. Please. But if we gossiped about our friend and they found out and now the friend no longer talks to us and they cut us out of our lives, that's a big consequence and we're crushed by that sin. And we carry it around, and we feel the weight of that sin, we feel the guilt of it. But friends, in either of these situations, do you see what's missing? In either the lustful thought or the gossip, we are not calling sin what it is. Willful rebellion against God, a violation of his standard. Instead, our own standard of goodness has been compromised. We, we see a lapse in our own moral integrity, and, and because of that, the consequence, whether it's big or large, we either belittle it or we're crushed by it. But friends, if my moral standard, listen, if my moral standard is the only law that's threatened by my sin, guess what I don't need? I don't need a mediator. I don't need a savior. And so many people go through this life making themselves the mediator. 
And, I, and I, I will either let myself off the hook if it's not so bad, or I will try to atone for my sin by the guilt and the condemnation and the beating myself up over it. But in both cases, what I'm doing is I'm pushing Jesus aside. I'm despising his sacrifice, either by minimizing my sin and letting myself off the hook, the sin for which he died, or I'm adding to it. I'm trying to add to his sacrifice by beating myself up to atone for it. Christian, we, we cannot move on in this prayer until we recognize, until we confess that our sin is always an offense against a holy God who also happens to be our Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. I want you to know if you're a Christian, God no longer deals with you according to your sin as he does with those of us who have not trusted in Christ. Only a certain expectation of fiery judgment remains for you if you refuse to trust him. But for those who belong to him, he deals with us as sons. But how do we live as sons? Do we live as sons? Do we see that our sin is a personal transgressing of his laws that bring us life and that in doing so, I've grieved my father? If not, my repentance will always be centered around some version of, oh God, no, I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. And then we move on. Instead of like David in Psalm 51 or, or the prodigal son in Luke 15 saying, Father, I, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I have breached your law in my sin. I am not worthy to be your son. What I'm doing there is I'm, I'm calling sin as God calls it, willful rejection of his standard that demands sacrifice that demands atonement. Friends, until I see this, I'm not really repenting. I'm looking everywhere but the mediator. I'm looking everywhere but the savior. I'm dealing with my failure to live up to my moral lapse. I'm trying to blot out, I'm trying to wash off the stain of sins that can only be removed by divine detergent and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Get that. So the psalmist begins the process of repentance by proper confession. Then he can move on. Secondly, second point, to petition. The psalmist petition. Now that David has confessed his sins, he has to get now to the difficult part of the repentance process. The difficult part. I... I say the difficult part because now his sins must be blotted out. His sins must be taken care of. He must be cleaned on the inside. God must act to provide cleansing for the psalmist. David's sin demands direct intervention because no sacrifice he offers is ever going to be good enough. Now, in one sense, this is because of what God's law stated. 
Do you know what God's law said to David? Numbers 35 states that the penalty for premeditated murder is death. Leviticus chapter 20 says the penalty for adultery is death. David deserved the death penalty multiple times over for his sin. And if God did that, he would be just. He would be just. But you see what David does in verse 7. He appeals to God's mercy. He says, Lord, purge me with hyssop. Wash me. Hyssop is a, a garden herb, a simple garden herb that God commanded to be used in the sacrificial system. It would be taken and dipped in an animal's blood or water and sprinkled. Of course, David is using it here in a figurative sense. He's saying, clean me, purify me. That word purge literally means unsin me. Unsin me, O Lord. And if God will look away from his sins and if he will give him a new heart, once again he'll be able to enter the sanctuary and, and hear joy and gladness again. Up until now, he's not been able to. And we'll look at this more next week. You see, friends, the role of, of, of petition, the role of request and repentance is for the sake of restoration between man and God. It's an appeal to the, the love and mercy of God to unsin me, to make me fit, to make me eligible to be in the sanctuary, to be in God's presence. David talks an awful lot about joy in a very somber psalm. You know why? Because he's been miserable. He wants to walk with God again. He wants to return again to the joy that he once knew as a man who has been saved by grace. So in verse 11, he pleads with God. Please don't remove your presence from me. Please don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given by measure. David had very clear memory of his recent predecessor, a man by the name of Saul, who had God's Holy Spirit taken from him. He knows what that could be like. Of course, friends, today this is not the case since Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is with us and he's in us. But oh my, does unconfessed sin surely grieve and quench the Spirit in us. You see, repentance and forgiveness and requesting and petition, all of this is for the sake not just of our forgiveness, but for our restoration. Both are necessary, you see. Forgiveness involves the removal of sin, but restoration involves the renewal of our heart. If David is only forgiven, sure, his sin would be put away, but guess what? He'll do it again. David needs God to not only put off his sin, but he needs God to put on, to give him a clean heart. If you're remodeling your kitchen and you pull all the old stuff out of it, you don't clean it up real nice and leave it empty. No, you add in new furniture. You put new appliances in. This is the idea here. David needs both removal and renewal. He needs putting off and he needs putting on in the repentance process. And friends, so too do we. You know, when it comes to all this talk of sin and repentance, it may seem like the Christian life is a, a pretty miserable life. One that's filled with self-loathing in despair. 
But that's not how David saw it. No, that's not how David saw it. David walked with the Lord long enough to know that true human happiness can only come from a deep and abiding communion with the Lord. You know why the Psalm 1 man was a happy man? We looked at him a few weeks ago. Because he knew the Lord. He was close to the Lord and his word day and night. And David's sin was a great thief that robbed him of his joy. These heinous crimes against God and man, the the murder that he did and making others complicit in it and the adultery and the deception, each of these were robbers of the sweet fellowship that he once shared with God. Friends, this is why no matter the consequences, whether you're a Christian or not, we need repentance. We need a putting off of sin and putting on the joy that comes with a right relationship with God. You understand this, whether you're a parent in this room or whether you're a child of a parent. I'm guessing that's probably everybody. You understand what this is like on a relational level. How often have our our children been like little ice cubes toward, toward us, toward their parents, toward their family, because of unconfessed sin? Sin keeps us cold. It keeps us in the dark. It keeps us, keeps us closed off. But oh, how many times have we seen a hard heart melt when a dad or mom goes to his sinful child and opens up his arms and he says, listen, I'm here for you. Yes, I know you sinned, but I love you. And when you're ready, we can talk about it. We can work this out. Friends, when we've sinned against God, the restoration of relationship is what he is after and granting the gift of repentance. He wants to fill us again with the joy of our salvation. So in all of our repentance, are we focusing excessively on one aspect of it, whether it be the removal or the renewal? You see, if we fixate only on forgiveness to the neglect of a heart change, we're going to continue to return to the same sins over and over and over again. You're going to keep going back to lust and to drunkenness and to murder in the heart, which is hatred, over and over and over, gossip, slander, over and over and over again. Why? Because all God is is a get-out-of-jail ticket when I feel bad. Can't focus only on one side. But if we focus on the other side, we we pursue only heart change, we're never really going to deal properly with our sin. We'll never call sin as it is. We'll never see how serious our offenses are against God. Either way, our repentance is incomplete. What we need is a holistic renewal of our spirit. And this is perhaps one of the greatest benefits, friends, to being in Christ in a way that not even David could relate to at this stage in redemption history. You see, the truth is, before God gives the the Christian the gift of conviction and repentance, here's a beautiful truth. Our sins are already forgiven. These allusions to the sacrificial system in verse 7, the burnt offerings in 16 and 19, are glimpses of the future sacrifice that Jesus would make for David's grievous sin. 
When an unbeliever puts their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, he or she is forgiven once for all. God acted at the cross. Christ bore the guilt of sin. There Christ restores the sinner with his perfect righteousness. Every sin is atoned for forever and replaced with his righteousness. Friends, this means when we come to God after we've sinned, we don't need to wonder what the answer will be. David had to wait for the word from Nathan. We don't have to wonder. No, we come to a father who's been waiting to apply his grace of restoration to us when we come to him. Gavin Ortland says, Gavin Ortland says, repentance is like saying you're sorry to a friend after he has already run to you, embraced you, kissed you, and clung to you. There is nothing to hide. There is nothing to fear. God longs to give us what David requests here. God longs to give us a renewal of spirit and a cleansing of our heart and an acceptance in God's presence and joy, the joy of our salvation and a willing heart. Each of these are benefits that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus available to us free of charge simply by looking again at his sacrifice. Friends, the second we look up, the Father is already running to embrace us when we've sinned, like the prodigal's father. And he's reaching into his deep pockets, ready and willing to pour out these gifts on us. All of this is made possible by the work Jesus did. David Covington is a a writer for the Journal of Biblical Counseling. He says this, about Psalm 51. Everything in Psalm 51 is fulfilled and accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. He identified with us in our humanity by his incarnation, in our sin by his baptism, in our guilt by his suffering, and in our self-centeredness and alienation in his death. In the central plot reversal of all creation, he changes direction. He makes his people identify with him in the upward line of his life. Friends, is the idea of repentance discouraging to you? If it is, I invite you to stop looking at your repentance. Look again to God's intervention in the person of Jesus Christ. He is David's perfect son. He never gave sin a second sinful glance. He never murdered life. He never took life. He gave life. He gave away everything and took nothing for himself. And when he went down into that baptismal water, he did so not to repent of sin for himself, but to fulfill repentance and action for us. And on the cross, he took our guilt and our forgiveness and our, and our shame. He took it. We put it off. And now in him, we can put on his righteousness by simple faith in him. And all God wants us to do now, night and day, is to cry out to him. Because night and day, he intercedes for us at the right hand. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
So repentance is confession. It's petition. And finally, it's the psalmist's mission. It brings about the mission. What do I mean by this? Well, David wants restoration and renewal, not just for himself, but for everyone in his life, everyone he encounters. For For David, redemption is not a selfish thing. It brings benefit to many. And so if God will grant him assurance of forgiveness, then the bones that God has broken will rejoice. David will sing aloud of the righteousness, the atonement that God has made. He will teach transgressors his ways. You see, when the king is restored, friends, the city would be restored. Scholars believe that verses 18 and 19 were added after Israel's exile in the 6th century, long after David, but it's a fitting addition These guys certainly understood the point of this psalm. It's it's that when God moves mercifully toward his people, they're, they're built up like Jerusalem's walls, and he will take delight in our worship. He will take delight in our sacrifice. In other words, cleansing from sin is the the prerequisite for the free and joyful participation in the kingdom of God. You know, friends, we will never be more useful for God than when our hearts are convicted of his love and mercy in Jesus. We'll never be of more use for God until we are convinced of his love for us. David was convinced, and today he's still teaching transgressors his ways as we study Psalm 51. And as we draw from its riches, we can become a means of grace in the lives of others. In my two minutes that remain, I'll tell you a little brief story. I have not been quiet about my love and affection for the Reverend John Newton of the 18th century. Whenever I lose sight of Christ, I open up his letters and I just begin to read and I see Jesus in his letters and I just begin to regain my sight again. But if you know his story, you know that Newton was a man who never got over the forgiveness that he received. He was formerly a slave trader, debauched to the core, a blasphemer of God in his heart and in his life. And God miraculously rescued him from a sinking ship so that he could miraculously rescue him later from his sin. And his life embodies this mission that David describes in verses 13 to 15. For 43 years, he served two churches in England, preaching of the steadfast love and mercy of Christ for sinners like him. In fact, few nations have been untouched by his influence. He was one of the founders of the Christian Missionary Society. And the effects of the influence on the lives of his converts was profound For example, Adoniram Judson, you may have heard of him, and his historic mission to Myanmar or Burma. By the time he died, there were 8,000 believers in Myanmar. 8,000 believers. Today, it's the third largest Baptist representation in the world, countrywide. Judson was fueled by reading a book that was written by one of Newton's converts. 
course, we know his influence in the lives of William Wilberforce, who led the movement in England to abolish the slave trade. William Cooper, the hymn writer who wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood that we sing here on Sundays. Why? How was Newton such an influence? Was he, was he a smart guy? Was it his charm? Was it his intellect? Was it his wit? No. It was his memory. It was his memory. Newton never forgot the moment in the corner of the front, the hull of the slave trading ship when he cried out to God for mercy. And the Savior looked into his very soul and redeemed him. Newton later wrote toward his death, the end of his death, never can I forget that look. Never can I forget that look. It, it seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. Over his fireplace, he had the words of Deuteronomy 24, 18, Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God that redeemed thee. And he never did. In his old age, his biographer saw that he was showing signs of age and he urged him one day to stop preaching, take life easy, and Newton replied, What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak at all? Just days before his death, a friend visited him and Newton told him that his powers were quickly fading, but he said this famous phrase, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And just so, future generations would always know it was Jesus Christ who redeemed him. He wrote his own epitaph and he put it on the grave, had someone put it on his gravestone. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Friend, are you carrying around your sin? Psalm 51 asks you, what will you do with it? The answer, if you need some help, is stir up your memory. Stir up your memory. David's sins were heinous. But they were heinous because every one of us commits sins as grievous and also those little acceptable ones that we tend to ignore. We need a place to be able to go when we've turned against God, when we've rejected his rule. We need a cross to go to. We need to feel the blood on our knees as we kneel. I wonder if there's some in this room who believe their sin is too great and therefore your influence is too small. Dear friends, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John Newton. Even the least. For his story is every one of our story who have received the mercy, the look of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're bound by sin today, I want you to hear this. You do not have to wait for a word of forgiveness to be offered to you. It's already yours. If you confess your sin, 
he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and blot out the stain of unrighteousness. You know, in the Old Testament, that's the last thing I'll say. In the Old Testament, the only sacrifice that was acceptable was an animal without blemish, a lamb without blemish. No, no other offering would be accepted. And that is why Jesus had to come. He is the spotless lamb, sinless for your sin. His blood, if you will receive it, speaks to you a word, forgiven. But you must come. You must confess. You must request, unsin me. Come with your broken heart. This God will not despise and is, in fact, the only damaged offering he will accept. A broken and a contrite heart. He will not turn away. Amen.